Hello, and welcome to Shoot the Shit, a podcast about buggy. The idea for this podcast came about like so many other great ideas in the history of Carnegie Mellon University. It was late one night at William Penn Tavern, and a group of us were sitting around talking about buggy and how many great characters and stories there were in the sport. And wouldn't it be great if we could record those stories and put them out and share them with the community? Well, this is an attempt to do just that. My name is Will Weiner, and I'm going to be your host. I've had the privilege of interviewing some of the biggest movers, shakers, and behind-the-scenes characters who have shaped Buggy into what it is today. So I ask that you sit back, relax, and enjoy as we shoot the shit. I am so excited. This week, we get to hear one of the greatest Buggy stories ever told. That story is the birth of Spirit Buggy. We sit down with four of the original members of the team to talk about the insane fact that they went from a brand new organization to four years later setting a course record that would stand for 20 years. We go through what it took to make that quantum leap, how they started from nothing, made it up as they went along, the trials, tribulations, ups and downs, challenges of being an African-American interest group trying to just integrate with the campus more in general, some of the hostilities that they face. It is a wonderful underdog story, a sports story. It is something I think you're all really going to enjoy. So I'm just going to shut up and stop talking. Let's go ahead and meet today's guests. Go first, Bowie. You're the leader. <laughs> Robert Bowie. I started Spirit Buggy uh, fall 84 there through uh, 88. And I'm Matt Wagner and I had the uh, fortunate, fortunate occurrence of being Bowie's roommate. So he, I think I was his first recruit to uh, Spirit Buggy. And then I didn't take, I knew I couldn't take in, uh, orders from my roommate that that would kill our relationship. So I demanded to be chair. And then, uh, so I was there from, I guess that spring. And then, and then I graduated, um, or I guess, no, sorry, that fall. And then I graduated in 87. I'm Tom Felmley. Um, I ran cross country and track with Bowie and uh, met Matt along the way. Actually pushed for SDC my freshman year and then got sucked into it about my junior year and uh, and was basically their, their lieutenant. Uh, I guess the final title was vice chair. Oh, and then you were also chairman too later on. Later on, yeah. <laughs> tell, people, tell people that too. That's not part of this story, but yes, I came back to the melon and, and was a chairman and, uh, you know, won. but that's, that's not part of this story. So. All right. And I'm Dave Sowers. I was a mechanic in 86 and 87. I was chairman in 88 and 89 and, uh, some other sort of, uh, assistant creature in, in 90. If you add all that up, that is five years, by the way. Uh, great. Well, thank you all for joining. I think probably the right place to start, right, is, you know, Bowie and kind of the creation of Spirit Buggy, you know, kind of what was behind you sort of putting it together and then sort of for everyone else, you know, following up on that, what drew you to the team? What was sort of the energy that, that brought you into this whole thing? The, the bottom line was um, in the fall of 84, uh, I was a... I would think I was a spirit treasurer, um, and essentially the university insisted that spirit be a little bit more part of the campus representing the black African-American community. Mm -hmm. And so 
to make that happen, Dr. Sired, as well as the spirit president at the time, as Donald Starbert, had a couple meetings. I was involved in those meetings and said, hey, we got to be involved in Spring Carnival. And so by doing that, we would get our budget back as as an organization, as well as, like I said, be more integrated with the campus and vice versa, the campus integrated with us. So that's kind of how I got started. I didn't do anything my freshman year with Buggy and didn't see it, didn't see the races, anything. So that's how we got started. So I was a one-man show with a guy named Rodney Cox, kind of helping a little bit because he had SEC background. And that fall in 84, we kind of jumped into it. I didn't know about sweepers. I didn't know about how I went down. So I was just there to observe. We picked up a bunch of fines. Ultimately, I asked for my roommate to join me in the morning. And if you're familiar with Matt Wagner, he doesn't get up before 9 or 10 o'clock anytime, but <laughs> he did help me. He did come out at 5 in the morning. And then that kind of started the, the recruiting process uh, for Spirit Buggy and kind of drove it. So when I got out there and watched the free rolls, I was completely interested. So from my view, it was an opportunity to compete. And I, I love competing. It was uh, I missed doing varsity sports and it, uh, from not running track and cross country anymore. So this is an opportunity to compete at the highest level and, and get in there. So start picking up folks and, and putting things together. And that's how we, that's how Spirit Buggy got started, essentially. And then we had to figure out how to build a buggy or buy a buggy in the spring. And we kind of found out we did that with Pegasus. So that's kind of how we got started. It wasn't any, hey, we're going to go out there and, so, and, and win the world. It was kind of a, hey, we're a part of an organization. We want to be more involved with the campus. I think like one of the things spirit folks talk about or spirit buggy folks talk about is like your origin story. Like what got you into spirit buggy, right? And we still talk about that. And like people who are new when we're back at Carnival, we ask them and all that. So it's kind of part of, part of the stories we tell. And, you know, it's kind of a two part story too, for all of us. Cause there's like, what brings you to spirit? And then what brought you to spirit buggy, which are kind of two different things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, obviously really closely related. You can't have one without the other, but they are a little bit different. But, you know, I've been part of spirit since I was a freshman because I was Billy's roommate and I met a bunch of people and they were great people and they had great parties and all that. But like as Billy said, I didn't see carnival as a freshman. I went home, you know, he's got a day off of school, right? But then he gets, you know, he keeps trying to get up, get up. I need you to sweep. I need you to sweep. And I just thought that was insane, right? I, right. You know, on a Saturday morning or a Sunday morning, that's not what I wanted to do, but it's Bowie and he's, he's convincing. And um, so I go out there and it really, like the moment I was out there, I could still picture it being on the top of Hill two with my broom and just looking at buggies. I think they're like some DTD buggies and stuff. And just like, wow, those are really cool. You know, and it was just seeing it that, that first pre-roll going out and sweeping. And then I was in from then on in. Dave, Dave had no choice. One of the stories <laughs> yeah, like to tell us. True. Yeah, you had you had no choice. He was also recruited by by uh, his like first day at school. He got recruited by Bowie. Yeah, Dave, yeah, Dave definitely he had a, he had a toolbox, so he was joining the team. That's that's, that's how well, it go down. You know, when you listen to all these stories, Bowie has the origin of Spirit, and everybody else will start their um, story by saying, "I was recruited by Bowie." And then some circumstances. And I, I'll tell you that I think my circumstances are pretty unique because out of random chance from the housing department, I got stuck next to Matt and Bowie in my freshman year when they were juniors. I had one skill and one possession that got me stuck in there, and that was my skill was I could snap a football, and my possession was a toolbox. <laughs> so I got pulled in for the intramural football team in the fall, and I was a buggy mechanic before I knew how to spell buggy. 
Yeah, and and you know, to put Dave in perspective is because he was the chairman when they set the record. Mm. You know, that stood for so long. He inherited a bunch of mess from <laughs> from me, Matt, and Bowie. <laughs> That was that had potential, but he he basically put all the pieces together. So I would like to add, I did help Dave recruit a driver for that year. I just want to point that out. Yeah, point that out. Everybody's story starts with yeah, what Bowie did. Right. <laughs> true. true. The nexus of it all. What was kind of the rest of recruitment like in terms of obviously, right? Spirit did exist as an organization. Was it kind of uh, pulling from members there? Were you having to go out across campus, or what was it like at that point trying to just get enough people to really have a buggy team reality, that could be competitive. The reality is we were just trying to get started. And to be quite honest, we were just trying to get pushes to come out. So we didn't have any pushes come out. We were two or three people in the fall of 84. We kind of rounded up to about 11 or 12 people because Spirit as an organization has National Society of Black Engineer Conference in March, has the fashion show in early April. And so we were competing against those things. And so we essentially, and we didn't get the basketball guys until after March as well. So we were kind of, we would go up to five or six with the mechanics and we were kind of running with a skeleton crew. And then we called the tribe from the Hill shows up. And then essentially our push teams show up. Uh, we thought because of athleticism that we had some good push teams out there, men's and women, but we had to recruit people. And then we had to give them incentive to get up at 5.30 or 6 o'clock in the morning to do something they've never seen before. And so my job was to keep people motivated uh, by getting people out, having a good time. We did things, whatever, have food, whatever the case may be. Initially, we kind of built around the women's team, and the women's team had some success and actually won in the second year. And then that's when things started to take off and more people started to come out. God, must have been mid-'90s. Tom, you might remember exactly the year. We had uh, really one of the most gifted chairmen we ever had was this guy, Carl uh, Lentz, who unfortunately, then he went to graduate school and got his PhD in, in composites and went to work for Scale Composites. I mean, really, really, really bright guy and a really great athlete too. Unfortunately, he died years and years ago from brain cancer. But I remember when I, like, I first met him, and so he must be chairman at the time, and I'm sitting talking to him. And again, like I said, there's that origin story, right? I'm like, so Carl, right? you know, how'd you end up being in spirit? And he's like, well, I came to school. I knew I wanted to do buggy, right? Because he kind of, kind of came from, you know, an auto background and a race background. And he's like, and spirit was the best team. So of course I joined spirit, right? Mm. So, you know, and it's so funny because that was for a while, that was the image. But when it was, you know, all the, the, the four of us, we weren't, right? It really was this ragtag group of folks. And there were a lot of people who didn't believe it. We literally had, I'm not exaggerating, we literally had other chairmen and other buggy people during free rolls point at us and laugh at us. Wow, it was, it was, we were that sketchy, right? I think so that was a part of it, Matt. Was that we? It's us versus the world. We're a small team, and we were open to everybody. So Tom, if he was at SCC, he wasn't going to build the buggy until his junior year, and he probably was never going to be a chairman. He could come in our organization and be the vice chairman in two years. We were taking people from other organizations that had good ideas but couldn't get in, get, couldn't get through their hierarchy. Well, if you came to our organization, you would lead mechanic. If you came to our organization, you were the lead pusher. We started giving out titles. And so we had to make sure that everybody had a title. So if you have 14, 15 people, we have 14, 15 titles. <laughs> and then we were flexible to other people coming in. So very diverse, open door policy, uh, worked out with Spirit. Obviously, other things that Spirit does helped us as well. Sure. We've said several times that there were some things that played in our favor. And 
uh, at the same time were roadblocks for us. One of those was being an independent organization so that we could recruit uh, actively around campus uh, in addition to drawing from the existing spirit members. Uh, so we, we saw that as an advantage. Uh, the disadvantage to not being one of the fraternities was that we didn't have a house. We couldn't control the people in a structure that guaranteed we would have flaggers. So there was a lot more work and follow-up and recruiting and cajoling to get people where they were supposed to be. That was kind of a, a two-edged thing. We also had no alumni. We were a, a new organization. There was no book of knowledge. There was no historical information to start from. So, you know, that was a roadblock. But the flip side to that was every idea was a good idea. We were starting with a blank sheet of paper. And in retrospect, we had a good philosophy that we would listen to everybody. So the guy that walked into the buggy room for the first time a week ago, we would listen to his perspective. Hmm. Ultimately, we may or may not use it. But uh, I think that was one of the things that allowed us to recruit people and draw them in because they had an opportunity to be a meaningful part of the team. Right. And I'm interested sort of how that contrasts with what buggy culture at large may have been. You mentioned sort of yeah. the fraternities and you look kind of at the leaderboard the years before. It was kind of this juggling between Pika, Signu, Beta, you know, all of them kind of famous for secrecy, discipline, order, you know, what kind of was the rest of that world like, uh, you know, maybe in contrast to what you all were doing? Well, yeah, I, I, I'm laughing because, right, just because this would it, impossible to imagine anything like this at Biker House, right? So we finally ended up getting a, a buggy room in the basement, the old Spirit House, right? But that was also the laundry for Spirit House. So we're in the middle of doing whatever the most secret buggy stuff you can, and people are coming in and out and doing their laundry, right? So, you know, we were, had to be open that way. I was kind of thinking like an example of kind of the advantage of being open is for the the one men's women or men's championship that you know that that I was a part of was my senior year and our hill four was an ATO brother and that just couldn't happen if you weren't an independent organization right mm -hmm. and you know and yeah I guess if we had that that history of secrecy and the history of all that we wouldn't have been as welcoming to people but like we just looked at everything we had no preconceived notions of how you were supposed to do buggy like I mean we had some basic basic engineering and like how do you build stuff and like you know we weren't we were smart about that sort of stuff but we didn't inherit the inherit this lore of you have to be this way or have to be that way so like one of the things so that the steering mechanism that was in sting which is the, the buggy that that i won with but also quantum leap and pretty much all the other buggies since quantum leap in a much more sophisticated way but we stole that steering, not literally, but we stole that steering, I think, from DTD, which at the time wasn't competitive at all. But, you know, and so if, I think if you were beta, you know, or pica, you would never have deigned to look at a, a, a DTD buggy. But we had a real issue with trying to figure out how to do the steering on Sting. And it was Chris Winkler, who's a real, real great engineer and, you know, got in his belly during free rolls and is looking at the DTD buggy. He's like, hey, that's the kind of steering we could use. Yeah, I think it's also um, the background of, you know, of the sport at that time. There had been that one lone independent victory with CIA. Um, uh, when was that in 81? 81. And then before that SDC had placed, you know, there was a second in there back in, 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 back in the past, but 
everyone looked at this still as this was a fraternity sport, you know, and that's, that was kind of the hard part about getting spirit involved and the general body of spirit involved was like, this, this is a fraternity thing. Why, why do we even want to do this? Spirit at the time was pretty inward focused. So the idea of turning outward, getting more involved with campus, uh, it, it took some effort. And that's a pendulum swing that happens with spirit organization ever since. You know, there's outward years, and then there's, then there's a return to a more, a more inward, more African culture focus. I've seen it swing back and forth probably five or six times since, since, uh, since I was there. Um, but it was, I was a spirit, pre- I was a spirit president. So that, that helped us out now in the late eighties though. So we're yeah. good to go there. Oh yeah. I mean, but, you set a tone, yeah. but to tell all these guys from the, who are coming out of the, you know, late seventies or, you know, early eighties, all of a sudden we're going to be something much different. It didn't come easily. I mean, you're quite, no. pretty convincing, but there was, there was definitely some pushback. But I think also we were in the mode of, it wasn't just about buggy for me. We were trying to win the intramural majors football championship, which we did for three years in a row, I think 87, 88, and 89, or the falls of those years. The same thing, we were trying to win intramural basketball, which we won majors in basketball. Well, independents didn't play in major IM sports. Very few teams did. So we took our teams and did that as well. So it was a, to me, it was a full-on assault of the whole system. I just, I just felt as though being an independent, I think we have we should have the same opportunities, have the same amount of fun, enjoy the university, and so you know obviously Buggy uh, is the one that gets the limelight. But it was about just trying to get integrated and make the Carnegie Mellon experience good for everybody. It's not just a place you come get a degree, graduate and go get a great job. Socially, just trying to make it a better place. Yeah, yeah and I think I think that's a key thing that um, to outsiders we don't talk a lot about this. And Bowie warned all of us that we had to be nice before we got on this this, this <laughs> podcast. But one of the things, if you really want to understand, you know, Spirit Buggy, and especially in those early years, you you can't ignore it. It's a huge part of the fact is that Spirit's you know an African American organization, right? Mm-hmm. And that was a huge part of the experience. It was a huge part of recruiting. It was a huge part of us internally trying to get people to convince them to be part of it, you know, um, and kind of part of that, you know, you know, Bowie says it in a very good way, um, accurate and, and, and political or politically savvy when he talks about inclusion and wanting to be included and all that sort of stuff. But a big, that was a huge part of, kind of what spirit and then what spirit buggy were all apart was kind of having black folks getting more integrated on campus. I mean, what had happened at the time is a lot of people, men and women who you really want to be campus leaders who are African-American, a lot of them went to join the fraternity, the black fraternities and sororities at Pitt and they left the campus. And Dean Sire, uh, I guess Dr. Sire, I guess he was president Sire right at the time, was, was brilliant and he really was right about it, which was part of it was, he wanted Spirit to be part of Spring Carnival in order to do a better job of keeping, you know, those black leaders on campus and really integrating the campus. I think it was also important not to get all in the political side and get back a little back to the buggy side, but it's, it's integration both ways. Yeah. So as Carnegie Mellon is generating engineers and top people going out in the field, you have to have some exposure to diversity. And so I was in electrical engineering, you know, we were eight to one men to women. African-Americans, 30 to 1. So 
the thing is, we we were developing these homogeneous great geniuses, but but the thing is, also the university has to generate people that can build relationships and move through. It's one thing to be technologically savvy, but it's another thing, obviously, to be able to move through in the business world, et cetera, et cetera. So I think we kind of caught a little piece of that. We were we were sensitive to it, but our real goal, like I said, was was to get in there and get competitive. And so some of these things drove us. And then naturally, we actually used them. Some people said, well, they help. We got a lot of help from the, from organizations. So people said, pretty much said, well, Spirit probably can't build a budget for five or six years, seven, eight years. Hence, obviously, Matt authored us, two or three guys got together, and we came up with a three-year plan. Basically, just kind of get the movement, get in and be involved. Second year, be competitive. And the third year, to win. What was huge about that was, we actually told people on paper we were going to win, and we hadn't done anything. We had finished second to last in men's and women's finished sixth, and we're talking about winning. But that also showed a lot of us is that if you have a vision and you put a goal out there, you can go for it. So that kind of drove us, you know, as a team and the organization, and particularly with us four, that drove us four to make positive things happen. Maybe to go a little bit more into the, the three-year plan, because I do think that's – kind of became the driving force you know what was sort of behind drawing that up what convinced you all that it might have seemed crazy to the rest of campus but what was it about yourselves or what you were doing that let you really believe this is possible we can win in three years from my view initially so i'm an organization guy i helped find the buggy pegasus uh to get us started and I helped design Genesis, which was the heaviest buggy known to mankind. It was actually ridiculously heavy. It was made of steel. And so, and so from my view, I had a push team that was pushing these two buggies faster than everybody else. And nobody was tracking that we were, we were pushing buggies 50, 60 pounds heavier and mm. still staying up with the other teams. So I knew we had monster push teams, men and women. I mean, so we... We literally, I felt we were four and a half seconds faster on the push teams alone. We also were feeling Matt was figuring out a way to mess with the wheels and the derby wheels. So we were getting faster. Mm-hmm. And we were getting faster economically. We weren't going out and buying or having wheels made by somebody. We were doing it organically. We were mm-hmm. getting faster and, and getting better. And then our drivers were getting experience. They actually knew where to turn. So we could see it. Or I could see the vision. Everything was coming together, and I think Matt wrote down, we could finish first or we could finish last. So in the second year, race day, do fantastic times on rolling. We're able to get out in front of people, and we're able to hold them off or stay close, and then we can track them down on the back hills. And so you can see this building up. Now, not many people are watching us, Mm. maybe Friends, maybe Sigma Nu, but I think you can see the pieces building together. I was uh, reading some of the history. This is Tom. And, you know, just the fact that it wasn't, you know, there were some key changes that had happened to Buggy not too long before this. Mm-hmm. Um, the addition of the D teams, because we knew we could field, at that point, we could field a bunch of random folk, you know, and we could get enough athlete on a one-two that we might be able to beat people up and over. Or we might, you know, and because we had, low standing in the in the seed charts in the seeding charts that you know we would be with a teams our c and d teams and we weren't considered any sort of competition the other thing and i was trying to figure out when the what the dates were but 
but the the dominance, you know, the quick the quick changeover to uh, women drivers that had happened, you know, in that decade right before. All these things, and I think maybe a little bit of everybody watching the races was like, oh, it's a three-horse race. It's going to be Beta, Piker, Sigma Nu. Mm-hmm. You know, f- the 15 years before, we had that one, two five-cap wins, and then they faded. And then, you know, that CIA win, which, you know, now has, was a, considered a fluke. I think the f- it was ripe. You know, the campus was ripe for change. And, and Bowie was talking about bringing in, Matt was talking about bringing in folks who weren't, didn't fit in other organizations. And we really did that. I mean, guys who, who designed our first uh, two competitive buggies, we brought them in from, you know, they were just mechanical engineers who wanted to design. And we brought them in. We brought in guys, the guy who designed the shape for QL, which I guess we'll be getting to soon. He was a fringe guy. And then Bowie alluded to bringing in a key driver. Uh, we got that girl from CIA, who still has an amazing driver training program, and we still don't. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but, you know, we, we, we kind of drew in a bunch of, uh, seriously, a ragtag group. And, and it's kind of a cool success story about, hey, you know, you bring in a ragtag group, you give them a vision. Um, and, and, and you let them loose and amazing things can happen. One of the upsides, uh, Dave was talking about not having alumni. We didn't have anyone telling us this is impossible. You know, there's no way that a team that's this young can do what you did. You know, the year I joined, all we had had, uh, that raced was the the Pegasus buggy, which uh, those guys said Bert purchased from ZBT. And then over the course of that first my junior year, we brought out three new buggies. That that was that was like you know again Genesis had been built, but no one really knew about it that much. Yeah, but they didn't, that, they didn't get it out in time the year before, so it never raced. Yep. yep. So it, all of a sudden, magically. Spirit had two buggies in the fall, and then magically two more buggies popped out in the spring. And, and that's, I think, when a lot of the people on campus started to say, oh, wow, this is pretty neat. Um, or or I, maybe not scared. And this is Dave. I, I think what's in really intriguing about that is not only was the number of buggies that came out in a short period of time, it was the progression that happened through those buggies in terms of uh, sourcing of them, in terms of technology that was in them, in terms of craftsmanship that went into them. Because uh, I'll get into it a little bit. Pegasus was a mixture of metals in a box frame with some composite, almost cardboard uh, sheeting on the outside. And so very, very Yestertech and from a manufacturing perspective, it was purchased from somebody else. So there is not a lot of team ownership of that buggy in terms of emotionally. Then you look at the, the, the next buggy was Genesis. It was also a steel frame buggy, almost a modified bicycle in terms of operation. It, in fact, it did have a bicycle fork in the front, but that was designed internally and built internally but with not a lot of technology, right? So it was a step forward and there was more emotional in investment in that buggy by far 
than the purchase buggy. But I think there was a pretty quick realization by Matt and Bowie and, and certainly Tom, that wasn't gonna be the technology that was gonna get you through your three-year plan. So before it had ever rolled a race day, it was on to the next step. Right. And that was uh, the two guys that came in that were mechanical engineers that each of them developed a design and put it on paper. And we set about building each one of those. And those were aluminum space frame structures with a, a composite outside. But now the workmanship, the craftsmanship, the design was light years ahead of Genesis. So over the course of three buggies and maybe 16 months, we had gone from buying a buggy to building a buggy to now building a buggy with, with significant technology and a much higher level of craftsmanship. And I, I can remember as just a new guy coming in, watching how people treated those buggies differently, whether it was pushers, flaggers, people carrying them, the mechanics themselves, there was a different level of buy-in around those buggies as we went through that technology before we even got to the buggy that was ended up being the winning buggy and record-setting buggy in 88. Yeah, we, Bowie and I learned pretty early that if we were able to pull it up organizationally, we, we had, we had the potential to really win, right? And a guy who really helped us out with it was uh, Steve Ng, who had been a chair of Fringe, and then he ended up being, I think, safety chair later on. And he was really missing um, Buggy, and we knew him through other, because he was mutual friends, and we played football against him and stuff, I am football. And we spent a lot of time with, with Sting, just him explaining to us as the senior guys, a couple years older than us, that, hey, you guys can really do this. And, you know, he really got us to kind of think through everything. And as Bowie said, like, we inherit, or I guess not inherit, but we, we start knowing, wow, we have, this, we have these potential great push teams, right? That's, that's there. Okay, what's next on the list? We kind of get a little lucky on wheels because I'm from Akron, Ohio, the home of the All-American Soapbox Derby. Never did it as a kid, never had anything to do with it. But my neighbors growing up were really big Soapbox Derby guys. And really, they had won, and their cousins had won, and all that sort of stuff. So pretty quickly, because of that accident, or just or whatever randomness, sure. we were only got pretty good wheels. So we're like, okay, great push team. Now we got wheels that were at least good and approach being very good. Our very, very best treated wheels were, were, were close to being as good as what's out there, not quite. So then it's like it says, and Dave, I think just did a beautiful job of walking through the last piece, which is the buggy, right? And you put that up. We got pushers. We got like the best push team out there by far. We got pretty damn good wheels. If we can give these people a, bit, a good buggy, you know, not again, doesn't have to be a great buggy, but a good buggy. And if we could hold all this stuff together organizationally, you know, there's no reason why we shouldn't win. When do you think campus started to to realize this and some of the competition was like, <laughs> yeah. oh no, these guys are serious. Yeah. What What's happening? In 86, we went down and uh, we DQ'd the buggy, but Sting went down and took off and we came in with the, at the time, I think the second best time and would have been fourth at the end of the day, but we DQ'd it on the brake test. Hmm. So I think uh, when they saw we had buggies that could hold, hold their own, in two or three seconds of the top buggies and our push teams were definitely I would say at that time 86 and 87 our A, B and C teams were 1, 2, 3 so that was pretty impressive and even our D team 1 was probably at 6 or 7 going up the hill so when you have that capability and really to be quite honest with you no one saw that 
because we didn't have the financial means to go fast other than truck weekend and race day. Mm. We couldn't get trucks. We couldn't do the other things that required to get up to speed. So, so we were kind of a, a mystery to ourselves. We had a plan, but we really could only show our cards twice a year. So at that time, based on the technology we were using. So I think the campus knew about spring 86 and that, and I think they saw some of the things we did that were a little bit unique. I'll throw out one. We ran Hill 1, 2. So when the pushers finally got to push practice in late March, early April, since we started Margaret Morrison, they had to go 1, 2, and over the top. And if you see a, one person go 26 or 27 seconds on a cold Saturday morning, that could pretty much scare you if, you're, if you see that going up the hill, yeah. one person. So, or you see one of our mechanics go 30 seconds, like a Carl or somebody like So when you see some of those type things, I think some of the organizations start realizing, hmm, these guys, they put it together, they'll be, they'll be pretty good. And I got to say, on the day, on the, the year in 86, the rules had changed since then. But in 86, when we set the buggies down at Design Comp, Elon and Sting were both uh, brown primer. <laughs> right. And they looked <laughs> like, they looked like shit. I mean, they physically <laughs> looked like shit. Oh, no, come on. You know, seriously. They, <laughs> and, and so folks, folks fully, fully, you know, and, and legitimately discounted us at that point. But then those were also the years where, you know, you could paint the buggy in between. You know, we painted them uh, that Thursday night. They were painted. And that was the, sure. I remember that was the one request from Pete and Chris, who were our, are basically our head designers uh, and head me not head mechanics, but head definitely head designers. They wanted to get that year's Corvette red, mm -hmm. and and we got the Corvette red, and you know, and it and we didn't have good spray apparatus, but we put that on, and those first years, those buggies raced, uh, they raced in red. So, but the day the night before the race day, that's when they got painted. I mean, things things were tight. I mean, you know, we were pushing the envelope really hard up to the point it broke a lot of times. So the buggies were covered in paper, right? They were covered in paper three weeks pre. Yes. I need to just correct Bowie a little bit because the way he talked about us going fast on race day only, he made it sound like a sound fiscal decision. Like, like we could have gone fast anytime we wanted to, but we were just being prudent with our dollars. And the way Tom explains it, it's a little bit closer to reality, which is. We knew we could go fast, but we were really just getting all the pieces together when it came to race day. Plus, we couldn't afford it. So it was both of those things. And, and I've got a little funny story to tell about design that, that, that Tom talked about those buggies because they did look like shit. And uh, we had worked on them all night to get them there. And the engineer who had designed Sting was supposed to present those buggies the next day. And the judges were from the School of Design and a judge from engineering and then a third judge. And he went home and went to sleep and never woke up. I, I went home, took a shower. I came back. I was the only one there, sophomore engineer in information technology. I had to go in and present the buggies. This is how good we were. We were just so organized and had everything down to the finest detail. 
Right. And the engineering professor starts asking the IT guy about the structure and why I designed it that way. Needless to say, our shit brown buggies didn't win design that year. <laughs> yeah, and I, uh, I disagree with Bowie a little bit about when the campus really noticed us. I don't think the campus really noticed us, the campus that is, until Dave won in 88. Because I think still people were saying, I think people were really excited. And a lot of people that I kind of barely knew came up and shook my hand when we won men's in um, 87. But there's still a lot of people in the buggy community and the broader community who were just like, oh, they're just a fluke. You know, they're not, they're going to be, you know, they'll never come back. That was an, it was a storm. Beta was clearly the better team, all that sort of stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. I think there's still a lot of people saying that about us. There were people back in like the year before, there were a few chairmen and a few other some buggy people who really did start to notice this, like Bowie said. So I think, I think like that 86 time frame, there's like a few people, buggy experts who do kind of notice it and say, hey, you know, these guys are, you know, they're a little fast and loose. Like who knows if they're going to make it on race day. But if they pull it together, they, they do have something. You know, you do a 2062, you can't deny that. There's no way you could say that was a fluke, right? So um, I think it took that to really establish, you know, spirit as, as, you know, what people think about it. We did get a lot of that from the more credible teams after we won with Sting. Um, in that period, after, when you win sweepstakes, that period of time between Carnival and graduation is a great time to be on campus. <laughs> if you've won, <laughs> because you can talk uh, to a lot of people, you can talk a lot of, uh, about a lot of people, but there's a lot of conversation that happens amongst the teams afterwards because of the frenzied crescendo that happens going into race day and then talking about the results afterwards. And I, I can remember that the popular opinion was the fact that we had won was a fluke. And I think a lot of it had to do with the mode of operation that we had, that we would be slow all year. We would have these ugly buggies and we'd throw it together for race day and go fast and it looked like we went fast for one day well of course it's a fluke you only went you you had no track record but i, I think that a lot of that changed going into 88 because now we didn't build a buggy in 88 we had built quantum leap the year before and it did put it, it was uh, i think it was c team wasn't it yep that that's a good that's a good story okay talking organizationally and i was again reading the some of the histories about you know, Pika choosing to put their new buggy as a team. Dave had actually moved into Margaret Morrison 127. The three, three oh, key yeah. players in buggy. Be a plaque in that room. For a variety of reasons, some can't be discussed on a podcast. But anyways, <laughs> so the buggy, again, this is legacy of one of those engineers, the guy, Chris Winkler, who built Sting. One of the cool things, uh, a fun story, is that his senior summer, that, so Chris graduated, but over his senior summer, he was still on campus, and he was living uh, as a boarder at Sigma Nu, and he started getting on the phone and ordering parts for QL, hmm. and he had all a good portion of the parts for QL delivered to Sigma Nu, and they never knew. <laughs> you know, he didn't look like some guy who would be a spirit guy, but um, so a lot of those parts. So so that so the plan, the base plan, the very base plan for what became Quantum Leap, you know, was started in the summer of '86, and kind of flowed from there. So why did why was such a 
a head and shoulders better buggy, why was it C-Team? And this was a wise decision in the end on the part of Matt and Bowie because the driver for that buggy, the girl who could fit, a nice girl, very, very courageous, very naive. She didn't know how to drive a car. In fact, she didn't know how to drive a bicycle. And yet she was willing to have a stuffer in there and, and go around the course. So we didn't have the piece, the final piece uh, of that puzzle at all that year for QO. So, you know, making it C-Team was made all the mechanics very upset, but it was the right decision, you know, and that's another takeaway about making the tough decision and disappointing us, you know, in a way we could eventually handle. It's a very tough moment. So it's very buggy. Kind of my best friends, and we obviously been working a year on a buggy. Thought it was the fastest buggy, but we had to make a C because we couldn't get the combination right. It was a little bit of sound, and then we had to bring in some additional mechanics to work on the other buggy. So it was a it was a tough time, but for me, we stuck together. The team stuck together, even though it we're friends, we got leaderships, but we were all still in it. So Bowie and Matt made the call. We want to stick behind them and make it happen. So ultimately, obviously, we won the race with Sting, and it worked out. I think what we put Glissel down what three times on QO on race day, and she made it through the shoot once. She scrubbed speed still. Uh, she spun twice, right? Twice. It made it, it made it, it made it the third time. One of the pre questions you asked, Will, was when did you know you had something special? One of my dearest memories of of that race day. I was a mechanic. Dave was a mechanic. Well, we were in the truck, actually. And the second time she went down the course and spun, she bent the back axle horrifically. Mm. You know, uh, it was bent at a 45-degree angle on the one side. And we had a race in, I don't know, 20 minutes. We had another race with that buggy in 20 minutes or so as scheduled. Actually, I think it was supposed to be 12, but you got to 20. Yes. Yes. That's, that was moving. That was, and, and, and we, like it was one of those moments where everybody knew what they needed to do. And we, we, we had a spare axle. We swapped that axle out in 20 minutes, uh, got it. Safety chair looked at it. This is again, a rule that does, you couldn't do this now. That buggy would probably have to be, uh, safety, uh, fully and drop test. I mean, uh, cape tested again, but, but at the time, it was a different axle mount. It was a different axle mount and a different yes. axle. Yes. The whole thing yes. had to be swapped. Yes. So, yeah, it wasn't slide one in and slide the other one out. It was bolts and nuts and, and wrenches and cussing and, and hold still. And I got it and get me this. And, and, uh, and on the outside of the truck, you know, Bowie is, is making moves and requesting delays and, and and getting a starter who was Bowie was well acquainted with to kind of add a little time uh, <laughs> to the clock. And that was Sanford Rivers, who was a, also a NFL uh, referee, but also a big part of campus life at the time. So we worked all the angles, and and that's when I was really proud to be part of that team. It really all came together. I mean, again, that buggy wasn't that wasn't competitive that year. But it showed its <laughs> toughness anyways. She bounced it off the bales pretty hard. I would like to add to that story is that constantly 
I was the face of the team. The people didn't know there was 10, 12 guys. By now, people know Matt. Matt was obviously the co-chair. People now know of Tom and Dave. But they were kind of in the background. It's not often that you have people that are so capable, obviously all of them end up being chairman down the road here, that are willing to sit in the background. I mean, they were in the truck the whole three hours, peek out the curtain every once in a while. And so I, it's a great feeling for me, whether it be 86, 87, 88, when you have the opportunity, when you know your team is going to perform. In 87, I mean, these are snowstorms, and we're on derby wheels. We're on hard rubber. That's not the best outcome. Lord knows what the times would have been and warm conditions and smooth asphalt, and our pushes are going once and twice cold. Our push teams are background, but like I said, we're sitting at 34, 35 degrees. But constantly, this team and the folks that work with us in the team just kept on performing. And for them to change out the axle in less than 20 minutes, I didn't expect it to happen. But <laughs> it, it, I, I didn't. I was like, hey, just, just try to get some time and try to get it out there. But once again, the team constantly surprised me. And it was like I said, the team was very capable. Maybe everybody didn't see that, maybe until 88 because of the 206-2. But I saw that in 86 with the pushers, with the ladies, and uh, some things. Like I said, we were pushing buggies 40 and 50 pounds heavier, Eleanor Reed's. Sonia's and and we were out pushing folks and like I said so that I felt like I said like I said we felt that turn 86 obviously everything came fruition in 88 with the record yeah I think it goes back to one of those things we were talking about earlier about kind of recruiting and inclusion and you know listening to everybody as part of like our organizational culture one of the things that that did kind of you know engender was people stepped up Right. And, you know, I have that talk. I haven't given it in a while, but I have this talk about everything I learned about innovation I learned during Buggy. And one of the things is I talk about, like, our organization back then is there were people who really stepped up because we were ragtag. We did have a lot of issues. And, you know, there are lots of stuff we didn't know what to do. And Tom was really the first one, right? I mean, Tom comes over and then, you know, we, we ended up, if, I guess, what were you originally like, the, our, our, our what, uh, inspector general, right? Yes. Because, because he would just, Tom would just look at everything they were doing, and no one knew who Tom was, but he'd be like, you're an idiot. You're messing up. Like, this isn't right. Why are you doing this? And the people wanted to kill him because they didn't know him. But Booney and I were like, no, this guy actually really knows his stuff. He's really helping us out. So, you know, eventually he's our inspector general, and then eventually our vice chair, right? So Tom steps up. But there's a series of other people. There was Tom Colleen, who, you know, everything goes back to Bowie. He was an Air Force ROTC with Bowie. And Tom was never going to be anything better than a C-team pusher on us. But he was really into it. He loved Spirit Buggy. He ended up becoming our push captain and ran all our push practices. We had Nancy St. Louis, who was one of our drivers. And she was tall, skinny, but she was really tall. She was never going to fit into any chemo. She was never going to be an A driver, right? She says, you guys are messing up with all the drivers and push practices and all that and getting the girl, you know, into the bugs and all that. But she became our driver's captain. There are a whole bunch of other people I could talk about who did the kind of same kind of thing. So, you know, it's not like it was just all Dave and Tom and, and Bowie and me. We had all these people, and at least we had a culture. We had an organization. We had a group of people that there were people who were really, really talented and who were really willing to step up. And I guess we had enough of a flexibility in the organization. It's not like, you know, you have to clean bearings for three years before you're allowed to touch a buggy kind of thing, right? People, you know, people stood up. And uh, it was one of the things that really, you know, we wouldn't, we wouldn't, be, we wouldn't have done what we did without all of those folks. Well, and I think uh, part of that uh, is really cultural. 
and I don't want to make too big of a deal of this because I'm not sure that it was entirely intentional. I think we were just, I mean, we had a purpose, but we were having fun and we would let people come in and join. And to Matt's point, uh, it wasn't about paying your dues before you could go into the buggy room or you could actually see a buggy torn apart or anything like that. We had people that were joining the team and had free time and might have been on the team for a month and they were in there when we were building the best latest buggy with their hands on it at some point. It, it took people stepping up and it took a, an organization or a culture that was uh, permissive of people stepping up that would make an established organization really uncomfortable. It would be really hard to replicate for an existing organization because we didn't have a lot of those barriers. We didn't have alumni to tell us, no, you need to keep this very secret. We just knew we had to do something big. Sort of within the uh, openness there, you mentioned kind of being overlooked. Was there ever any cases of some of the fraternities, you know, trying to scoop in there and uh, get something because you were so open or were they really just that kind of, oh, who cares about these guys? Uh, you kind of could operate in the open and the secrets were right in front of them. You want to tell the story, Bowie? You got it, man. Tell them about yeah. the wheel. Well, there's the wheel story. No, but the story I'm talking about, the, just fraternities looking at stuff. We used to have, for, for free rolls and stuff, we had this really badly built like tent. It was like two by fours and sheets that we kind of unfolded so we could go in and work in there, right? And Billy tells a story when like cold morning, he looks up and he sees the face of death and it was Mark Estes. Because <laughs> <laughs> Mark, so there, there were people like Mark really literally opened up the curtain and put his head in. So... So yeah, you know, there were a few, there were people who noticed, right? And again, there were people who did see a few things, but you know, on that level, it's like, I kind of, kind of figured that that stuff, that stuff wasn't really important to me or the secrecy wasn't that important to me because I thought there were like a bunch of buggy people out there who just had no clue, right? Mm. And that's the, that's the story that the, the, the other story that Boo was saying, I can tell you about the wheel, but where like, it's, you know, it's the first time, it's uh, 87, so we won men's and women's, so the second time we won women's. I'm really, really excited. Chairman comes in, gives us a bottle of champagne. I let him in the biking room from another team, obviously, right? I hand him the race wheel from QL because it's, it's all chunked, and I'm just so happy. Can you believe it? We actually chunked a wheel, and I hand him our race wheel, right? You never do that in, in buggy, right? The race, and it's all chunked. It's clearly a stock derby. It says All-American Soapbox Derby, right? And, you know, Boston. <laughs> he refuses to believe that it's the race wheel. He's like, no, I know that's not your race wheel, right? So there are these, those folks who just like, they're so ingrained with what they think buggy is or they just don't have a clue that you could give them everything and it doesn't mean anything, right? Then you got the folks who really know their stuff, like Mark Estes at Sigma Nu, and sure, he's keeping his eyes open, but did he really learn it? Like, is he really going to change how he's building Drapoa or whatever they were building at the time because of something he sees on Sting? Probably not, so... You know, I always thought secrecy was a little, a little overrated in buggy, mm -hmm. but you know, because it still have to. You know, even if you knew all the secrets, you still got to pull all that stuff together organizationally, right? Recruit people, keep them motivated. You know, just you know, do the work, right? And you can have all the secrets you want and still not be able to put a, a good team out there. QL was a buggy. We think it was one of the best of all time. Obviously, it had a clear windshield. You could look straight in and see everything in the buggy. Mm -hmm. We didn't care. Or maybe my mechanic couldn't figure out how to tint that windshield. I don't know. But the bottom line was, it was wide open. Yeah. It was wide open. You could look right in there. A and B. The answer yeah. is A and B. And that's, that's you know, that again, um, 
that was that to us was a big innovation in QL. The the entry through the uh, through the windshield that was a big innovation. That was when there was a delay at free rolls. Me and Willie Rueda, who we got because he was a little bit of a he, he was a loose cannon in fringe, um, wasn't getting much much play uh, uh, with them. So he came over to us. And uh, he, he did the exterior design for the, the shape for the buggy. And we were sitting in there and trying to figure out, well, because, again, Chris Winkler had got us all the materials, but, you know, we didn't know exactly what to do with all those materials. Now, he had graduated, and, that's, and, that, and you can get into a whole, whole uh, philosophical discussion about, you know, the fact that uh, buggy is a four, you can only, you're only eligible basically for four years or five. Mm-hmm if you're Dave or me or, or Bowie. <laughs> or Bowie. Um, but, you know, the turnover in the organization is drastic. You lose basically yeah. 25% every year as they graduate out. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so, so we had all these cool parts. Then we just had to, then we had to go through this, all the steps of putting it together. Um, so the idea of the entry through the windshield, well, where are we going to cut the hatch in the buggy? You know, it has to have a hatch, right? Don't, don't the buggies have to have a hatch? And the thought that like, no, it doesn't have to have a hatch. In fact, you cut a hatch in the buggy, you weaken it. So mm. that, that was, you know, just uh, a, one of the minor breakthroughs that kind of help happened over the course of, of development. Um, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't minor, Tom. I mean, that really, from my perspective, that really was the design breakthrough, right? I mean, it's pretty obvious, again, you know, if you think a little bit, even back, you know, in the, the mid-80s, yeah, carbon fiber makes a lot of sense, right, for, 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 for a buggy application. Then you're like, what's really cool and really light is let's make it a monocoque. Let's make it a two. Great. That's pretty straightforward to figure out how to do, right? And then I guess there's kind of two things that then are on top of it. One, one is, again, a pretty standard buggy technology is, you know, QL is not just a tube, but it has a pan on the bottom, right? So it's a, two, a pan with it. So that's maybe a little bit of just more than just a tube. But then, you know, it's that. It's like once you say, okay, the whole idea, it's a tube, that's why it's cool. And that's why it's harmonic, you know, right? That's where all the strength comes from. Then your fundamental design problem comes like, how do you keep it a tube? Mm. And that was, a, we didn't solve that problem until you and Willie did. We had no idea how to build the buggy until you guys figured that out. Like all the rest of it. Yeah, we have, a, we have the Hexel panel. We have the carbon fiber. You know, we got the dimensions from Sting. You know, until you did that, we didn't have a buggy. I, I guess, okay, okay. We're geniuses. Thank you very much. Uh, <laughs> you know, send us, send some, uh, you know, I'll have a GoFundMe page for, for my genius retirement fund. But yes, I mean, that's, that's kind of how that was also you know, we would sit there and noodle on problems. I mean, that one was a two-person brainstorming session, but, you know, there was a lot of that stuff that you could pick up from other teams if you kept your eyes open, but there was other stuff that you're like, well, you know, how do we do this? And we had some really good, really good brainstorming sessions, and the whole idea of no idea, no opinion is is dumb. Mm -hmm. You know, the idea that that would spark another idea or or lead to another discussion. I think it was it was good. And again, that open culture at the time was key to that. You know that every voice was heard. You know we might have stomped on you a little bit for you know dumb ideas. We it wasn't a it was an open forum, but we weren't always. You had thick skin. You had to be thick skin. I think you had to be thick skin. But also, guys, remember, 
all three of those buggies you mentioned, actually including Pegasus too, their first rolls were disastrous. Yeah. You spend all this time preparing all the buggies. We won't go into details, but the three last ones all sagged and dragged and did not roll. Yeah. Yeah, even yeah. QL. Yeah. yeah Everything that, needs that tweaking. Is the truth. One other thing that was happening throughout those buggies that uh, I, I think is really important is that we recognize the need for simplicity because one of the approaches that we yeah. took early on was we didn't we don't know everything up front and we want to be able to run uh, roll this buggy and then we want to learn from it and then we want to be able to adjust this buggy and that actually got us into a little bit of trouble so. <laughs> That whether the structure was complicated or whether we built in adjustability that led to complication, it, it never worked out for us in those years because we didn't have good repeatability in, in our roles to begin with. So we, we ultimately weren't learning anything from how they were performing. But if you look at a lawn, which was in some ways a lot like QL because it was a tube structure, but it was a, a small diameter aluminum tube space frame larger tube and as a lot of happened to a lot of our buggies that buggy crashed uh, late in the season in spring free rolls and it was a curb impact that shattered probably 50 or 60 joints in in that space frame so we had to go back and re reconstruct most of that buggy while we were trying to get ready for race day one, one of the variabilities in sting was we had full alignment capability with the independent rear axles that ends up ultimately not making the buggy very stiff, but additionally, uh, it's very difficult to put it into alignment and keep it into alignment. And so the, the whole theme behind QL was really about simplicity. How do we take out all that variation that comes with a complicated structure? How do we take out all the variation that comes with adjustability and try to make something that beyond all else will be reliable. I mean, it sounds very boring, but for us at the time was a big goal. How do we make it reliable? How do we make our roles repeatable so that we can learn from it? The, the key for us, since we had the horses in the stable, the key for us was it had to be a stable push platform. You know, so simplicity also got us reduced vibration, reduced wasted energy, mm -hmm. and it made it easier to push. So it all kind of bundled into, you know, let's make something that our guys who come on the team late and girls who come on late can push without a lot of, well, no, you got to have your hand here and you got to make sure to not push too far to the left or elsewise it'll spin out. You know, it was make it simple make it a good push platform mm. a good wheel platform well, it was good we had genesis to start with genesis obviously we call it the tank affectionately if you get to push that buggy you can't hurt it can't beat it up but the bottom line was everybody could train on that and then obviously get a much lighter platform later but the bottom line like i said that was an opportunity you could put people in there you put drivers in there and like i said it was a good opportunity to learn how to push I think the key thing we keep on forgetting about QL though in 88 was we were very lucky once again, I was outside watching all the free rolls. We had KDR come up in that time frame, and we noticed mm -hmm. some changing tires that were going out there. 
like I said, not to put everything out there, but we noticed some other things, technologies are coming into being, and we observed with KDR, a, a brand new team as well, what they were doing, I think we adopted some of the things they were doing to lower our center of gravity in the back of the budget as well as also make us quicker. So I think there's some pieces out there, even though we were new and doing well and winning, we were still observing mm. all the other teams at all times. I think we can get into it a little bit, the fact that, you know, we had been a derby, a derby tire, a derby wheel team uh, from zero. ZBT, the buggy, the Pegasus buggy rolled on derbies. We had rolled on derbies exclusively. This new wheel design that came onto campus, actually from, from the wheelchair racing uh, area, was markedly lighter than a derby wheel. I mean, we had never got really got to the point where all these other teams had worked with Derby since DTD way back in the day when they brought them back after World War II, basically, and, and everyone had the gold Derby wheels and so forth. We never even figured out really how to disassemble them and put them back together right. So we were using pretty much stock stuff. But this was another change, and that's when, you know, we keep saying QL – I mean, the whole idea of the quantum leap, uh, and it was for us, the, but then the next iteration of QL, the year it set the record, was that it actually had a full 3D windshield, and it actually rolled with those different tires on the back. Um, and that's when it started being called Air QL, because <laughs> the, the, the Nike Airs were a big thing at the time. So The culture's impressive in terms of, all these ideas, all this input, working through that. How did you balance that with so many potential opinions and ideas versus sort of the need for discipline and being able to decide, you know what, that is the right way to do the wheels. That is the right way. And, you know, just kind of the amount of pressure and time that goes into putting a buggy season together. How did you kind of balance um, that? We mentioned this before. There there was uh, a relationship everybody had that was – you were constantly ripping on each other in the buggy room experience inside the buggy room, outside the buggy room, anybody on the team, it was just constantly uh, at one another it became part of pretty much who we were. So anybody that was on the mechanics team or worked with the mechanics team in the inner circle, you had to have a thick skin all the time. That I think translated pretty well into when there was actual conflict and it wasn't just made up ribbing that I think people lived through it a little bit better as well. Mm. And there were some pretty rough moments. And we talked about one from, uh, from 1987 when QL was a new buggy and there was some mechanics, Tom and myself included, who had spent immense amounts of time, maybe more time than we had attending school in completing <laughs> that buggy. Mm. So we were very vested in seeing that thing race and, you know, it's well known that one of the aspects of buggy is you work for a full year and you get one weekend to show it off. If you're not going to be the A team, that's a big conflict. Well, we had that conflict. We worked through it. And the four of us are still very good friends. Uh, a lot of years later, in spite of having to go through some really rough discussions and decisions at that point. And I, I really think that's the metal that gets you through those tough decisions and allows you to pick through the myriad of open 
discussions, all the decisions that come in, a, a new person could throw out an idea and, and we could pick it up and run with it. Or we could take an experienced person and tell them their idea was terrible to their face and we would all be okay with it mm. because yeah. of the interactions we had. Yeah, I think, I think, like I said, the relationships is key. I mean, I, I think we were meeting literally 7.30, at least Monday through Friday, 7.30 to 8 o'clock every day. Mm. I mean, we were scripting everything we were doing. If a, if a challenge came up, the, the four of us knew how to react. We, we actually, I knew what Matt would think. And if, if somebody was not available, we, we would step up. So I, I think keeping, having that relationship, obviously the mechanics being tight got us through. And then really, we counted on, we actually called the A&A Prime, we counted on all four teams doing their jobs, all four men's teams, all three women's teams, every flagger, even the people who were faking like they were security, S1W, everybody had a role. And so, and it, and it, like I said, from top to bottom. And so I think by having that situation, i.e., I see team was our best buddy rolling, but I pushed, it was the third push team. Well, they still had a job. Their job was to get around and make sure they won their heat and get the right place and displace others. So I think top to bottom, some of these type things, as Dave has mentioned, when you have the challenges you have during the season, I think it kept on making stuff. So when we had some big ones come up, we were able to move through them. I had a current spirit chair ask me, I said something about committed mechanics. I think what makes a committed mechanic is that there's a clearly articulated vision that you can grasp and you can say, I can really get behind that. What his question was, what, how do you, what's a committed mechanic? And I said, well, here's two indicators. One is you go in the buggy room and it's daylight and you come back out and it's daylight again. That's, that's a committed mechanic. And he's like, Oh, and I said, I've got to get another one. Two mechanics walk out of the buggy room and they're talking about buggy and where their paths diverge to go home, they stand for another 20 minutes or half an hour, and they talk about buggy. I mean, they're still so jazzed about it after hours and hours that, that they're just, you know, that, that's, that's what they eat and breathe for, you know, at least, you know, the, at least the run-up to, to race day. Will, one of the questions are looking like, what were the things that, you know, made us special or whatever? Nothing else. There's a lot, a lot of passion and a lot, a lot of hard work. And some of the things that, you know, over the years, you know, <laughs> you know, I never wanted to have alumni. And, you know, David mentioned how it's liberating not to have alumni. And I remember, you know, thinking, oh, this is great. Now I've you know, become what I hate. I'm an alumni, right? <laughs> but um, it has been really fun and a great kind of experience that Spirit's still around. And you get to come, you know, I go back to Carnival and, you know, I meet all these younger folks. And I see that they still have a really interesting experience about it. But, you know, over the years, you know, one of the things that, you know, you know, is I can be a crusty alumni about it is just to remind these guys, just like, how do you do that? How do you guys do it? We put a lot, a lot, a lot of effort into it, like mm. tons and tons and tons of time. Not everybody, but there was like probably, you know, a core group of like 10 people that were just obsessed about it. And then maybe another 10 or 15, they were kind of obsessed. I don't know. And then kind of the rest of folks. But having that, I still think, you know, it's probably the way it is today that if you don't have that kind of core group and it can't. Just be like a couple chairmen and you know a push captain or whatever. If you got to have this core group of like, I don't know, five to ten people who this is this is their passion, this is their life. You know that's you need that to win. And 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 we had that for you know whatever reason we were fortunate enough to have this group of people that really loved each other and really loved buggy and really spent all that time 
just one other thing, just on the decision-making thing, uh, cool question. I think, you know, the whole culture, and it's, it's certainly where Boomi and I were coming from, is the leaders back then is, and, uh, you know, Dave and Tom will tell you about how, we'll give you all these examples where we weren't perfect, or we, <laughs> that I'm, they're going to call bullshit on what I'm about to say. But I really think for the most part, you know, although we have a lot of strong egos, the spirit buggy culture was not about ego and decision making, right? The decision making was all about how are we going to, what's going to get us to race day? What's going to get us to win in race day? It was never about it's my idea, you know? And there, and over the years, there have been some spirit people who kind of are a little bit more ego driven than average. And, you know, I won't name any names, but then like Tom and I, or we'll roll our eyes about that person, right? They, they, they kind of stand out like a sore thumb, right? But at least the, the kind of traditional spirit buggy way is it's, it's, it's that passion, but it's like, it's not a lot of ego. It's not a lot of like, it's not a lot of like, it has to be my way. It has to be, you know, whatever. Like I said, I think Dave said, it's, you could be the new, a fresh mechanic who's been there for a day. And if, you, if that's the right idea, if that's the soundest idea, that's what we're going to go for. Mm-hmm. I definitely agree with that, especially with the push teams. I mean, even fastest person five days out gets to push 18. If you were a senior and pushed 18 three years and you had a bad spring, you could be on C team. It, I think the culture was set that, and decisions were made, our goal was to win. Yeah, and I think, you know, to a testament, and we'll get into this a bit more later, you you still see such a team focus and energy from spirit and something that, you know, has always made them one of my, my favorite uh, buggy teams to watch. But let's hone in maybe a little bit on 1988. Obviously, right, we, we set the stage pretty well. 87, you win. There's questions, was it a fluke? Uh, was it bad weather? You know, Quantum Leap was rolling with the C team. Uh, obviously, we know how it ends with the record, but going into that point, were you just kind of driven to prove, no, this wasn't a fluke, we were going to win? What sorts of things were in your heads in terms of what outcomes were possible for that race day? It started when we got the trophy in 87 for me. How things went down at that award ceremony, how we were getting discredited, I personally, even though I was going to be going into my fifth year, I was going to support Dave and Fred Butler to make sure we were going to take it to the next level, whatever it took. Because like I, like I said, this was next year was the way I looked at it. And so it, it was, to me, it started right on the war ceremony in 87. I was driven all the way through 88 from my side. What he's referring to is, is the fact that, you know, only the, no one from Beta showed up to the award ceremony, accept their chair, to knock over their second place trophy and and walk away. That was, you know, a, a really big slap in the face. It was, um, you know, it was kind of, a, from our side, it was kind of like, hey, that's racing. There's been years that you won because of rain delays and different, you know, and having to race on another day. Um, so the idea of, you know, not not even no one showing up um, uh, except the one chair. It, it was really, it, it kind of set the tone for, okay, it's on. Right. So for, for a lot of them. But for a lot of us, it was kind of like, okay, we, we kind of know this buggy thing now. I think we can do this buggy thing. We showed them, you know, let's, let's see what, what the next year holds. So, but it did, it did wake up a lot of people on the team to, to some of the resentment, to new teams, to some of the resentment, to, you know, uh, diversity and inclusion. 
Mm. Um, so it, it did empower a lot of us to kind of say, okay, we'll show you next year. I think Tom makes a good point in also piling onto what Bowie said is that that end of the year, you know, I said, that's a really fun time. And I got to enjoy winning three times during my college career. And that two weeks or a month after carnival, before everybody's leaving after finals, it's a great time. That first year, it was, it was contentious. And not only did we feel that we were disrespected as a race team, if you will, that's a fluke, right? We also, we felt disrespected as individuals because of the commitment and the, um, the time that was put in to get there. We may not have run, been fast every, every weekend, but we knew how fast we could be. And, and then there was this, you know, the other level of it that we felt like surprised at the level of resentment that was there. So it really was galvanizing, I think, for what as individuals we wanted to do the following year. We, I, I almost felt like we had more to prove in 88 than we did in 87. And mm -hmm. so as, as individuals and as a team, we had to do something more and better they, in professional sports, they call it bulletin board material. Right. Well, they gave it to us in spades at the end of 87. I, I know we've, we've touched on them a bit through here, but uh, what do you think were some of those major changes, pushes that allowed you to really kind of take that jump and get to the record? You know, was it just kind of the dedication to working harder or were there kind of a few key moments or elements that, that really throughout the year let you unlock that, that time? Uh, I think the key moment, obviously, uh, on the recruiting side was we picked up Kathy Lynn from CIA. Mm -hmm. uh, she's really competitive. CIA was driving the best lines. They actually were flying at the buggies. They, they couldn't get their push team together, and the buggies were heavy. So they were transitioning out of Black Magic, but still staying pretty heavy for their push team. So her significant other, who's her husband now, was leaving. They graduated, and so she was kind of open. I knew him from Air Force ROTC, and I said, we got QL ready. You're the right height, so you fit in the back end of the buggy, and we're going to make it. We can we can take this to the next level. We also picked up Roxanna. Oh, 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 hold on, hold on a sec, Boo. I, I just want I just want to, to emphasize what you did because again, all, all all roads go back to Bowie, right? Hmm. At least at this stage of Spirit Foggy, and I just say he's such he's he's such a great manipulator and such a great recruiter. <laughs> but what he actually said to Kat, Kathleen, Kathleen, she's great, right? And her, her license plate still, still says 2062 to this day, right? And, um, and she was a really loyal person. And yeah, her, her, again, her husband or her husband-to-be had graduated, but still she had driven for CIA for three years. She still had friends there. She still really had the strong sense of commitment. She's a real stand-up person, right? So she's really, she's just like, I don't know, no, boy, boy, but boy, but boy knows, you know, again, from her from Air Force ROTC, he knows how competitive she is. He's like, well, that's great, Kathy. I hear you. You're totally, I, totally great. He's like, but do you want to win? Because <laughs> you're not going to do it with CIA. That was the right. impl implication. She, she picked up on it right away. She was powerless and, to say no. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was basically like, look, we've got the ride. Watch any good racing movie. And you can be a talented driver, but if you don't have the ride, you know, you're going to be in the back of the pack. So another galvanizing point about that was we had some relatively, you know, the drivers were getting a little bit complacent. They're like, okay, I show up, you know, I've been here three years. They didn't seem to be catching the sense of everybody is replaceable. 
it was pretty clear from the push teams that, hey, if you don't perform, I don't care if you've come out, you know, 365 days of the year. If you don't perform, that doesn't earn you a place on, on a team. Seniority doesn't cut it. This is a meritocracy, not a, uh, you know, not a seniority-based organization. So um, she kind of helped shake up some of the drivers. It was kind of like, whoa, okay, there is, this is operative amongst the drivers. Because if you talk to in depth with any other organizations, you know, the, the whole idea of if, you're, if your Hill 2 pulls uh, a quad muscle, well, you have a substitution there and, and they go. But because of the amount of roles you have to have, if your driver quits, you're done. Right. That team is out. You're done. And so there gets to be a sense of, of drivers are gold and you treat them, you know, with utmost respect. And it kind of, you Hold know. Hold on so you, a minute. I, I have to, I'm going to have to interrupt. Okay. Matt, somebody else make that statement. Matt, why don't you say that? Because I can't believe it coming out of Tom's mouth. <laughs> Nobody that's listening to this is going to believe any of that coming out of Tom's mouth. <laughs> that's it. He's 100% right, but nobody's going to believe it coming from Tom. But no, wow. that, that shows how he's matured. That's great, though. But I will say is that what Kathleen did do uh, for Dave and Fred Butler and the crew there was she was committed. If she was 105 pounds, she was eating rice cakes for the last month. She was out running and tight. She was actually trying to lose 200 pounds to get that .01 or .02. She was pushing, hey, you guys don't go fast. She would come out the buggy and talk to the pushers. She was kind of motivating. I want to win. I mean, was, and we picked up Roxana from Fringe, who wanted some of the action too, because she was kind of like third or fourth driver on their team. She was actually Kathy's going to graduate. We already had the backfield the following year for QL, so we stacked up. Like I said, changed how the drivers looked a little bit. Uh, we actually had some drivers graduate, some leave school, so that was great. But that was the the pieces plus the added wheel technology, and then. Dave, lots of experience now. We actually have a mechanic that's built them. He's an organization guy. He's the total package. So now, and he knows how to work through the government to get the money right. Mm-hmm. He's, he's been up, he's observed the whole time all the things. Ultimately, we had the optimal organization and we had the right components. And I think Dave kind of said, hey, we can go 205 and change. Like, woo. So that was pretty good. Plus, isn't that the year that DU was kind of hanging around? So the campus kind of comes yeah. our way, so we can, so we can beat DU, and actually we get a little bit of love that year, at the end. So I, I, think, I think there's a from a race day perspective, I think DU is more important in our time than some people would give credit for. It was really when you look at race day and everyone's competitive and everyone's going to go at least a little bit faster than what they had gone before. You're really trying to go as fast as you can, make it through the shoot. We as an organization had a philosophy that we were going to go fast enough to win uh, on race day because that was just the competitive spirit. It was you didn't want to commit all those hours for the whole year and not give yourself a chance to win. That was our theory. Well, as that race day, race weekend was playing out, DU was a real unknown quantity because of they're rolling on two wheels for the first time. We thought, wow, they could really crank up the speed and do things on race day that we've never seen before. They were, to some extent, laughed at early in the spring, like we had been a few years prior to that because of the instability. And on the, the first day, 
they rolled before the primarily competitive teams rolled. And if I'm not mistaken, they rolled a 2082 on the first day or a 2084. It was somewhere in there. Their, their the first roll was in the 208 for the women's. And then they pulled a 2067. That was, that was where everyone on that first day forever, that was the Greek record. I mean, it was like, holy shit, hmm. you know, and everyone was freaking out about it. It set, it set the bar so high that, you know, um, I don't know if other teams, you know, overdid it to try and beat it. I don't know. But it was, it was stunning. It was fully stunning. And even though, you know, like, like uh, Bowie alluded to, Dave had a 205 on paper before we got to race day. It, at, at this point, the organization was tuned well enough. The, the push practices actually happened somewhat on time. They were actually good practices. You know, it wasn't just whoever showed up and could we get a driver. We had organized push practices. And the numbers we had on paper led us to believe that it was possible for us to do that. Mm. But then to see another organization pull that off, it, it made for an amazing race weekend. I mean, fun to watch, fun to be part. Again, I was at this point, I was watching. I had graduated in December of the year before. So I was kind of floating around giving advice. And, but I was more watching. This was, this was Dave and Fred's moment, to, Fred Butler. Now the chairman, a moment to shine. So, but they threw down the gauntlet and then, then it got interesting. I will say that that's one of the, I think one of the big differences in the organization from the first couple of years to that year was that there was a lot, aside from myself, there was a lot of experienced people around, you know, Buggy was, or Bowie was really an advisor for us. Didn't have an everyday role in the organization, but he was there. So all that experience is there. Fred Butler had been around. Tom Colleen had been around. The drivers had been around. Kathy Lynn brought personal maturity, a driver maturity, and a competitive spirit that allowed us to kind of turn some of that over to her. There was, so, the, there was a lot of pieces of the organization, the organization that were maturing from those first three years that really brought things together. And I think that understanding of what we were capable of was something that was new as well. Like, in the pre previous years, we couldn't write a number down. We knew we could be competitive with the other guys, but we didn't know what we were going to roll. Yeah. And I remember uh, that race day. After the first race day, I remember talking to Gino Cosentino in the afternoon. We rolled a 207.4 the first day. And I said, Gino, we have a second, second and a half maybe, that we can improve tomorrow because – we had good times on all the pushers on all the hills. We, we finally knew what a good transition looked like. We had enough good rolls in, in the spring for our hill three guys to be able to pick up a fast buggy. So we were so much, as an organization, more mature that we really had a good idea what we were capable of. And, uh, uh, you know, to the point where we could predict from day one to day two what we had left on the table. We had a big advantage at that, that time, too. I mean, the second day, I think DU spent, spun out. Mm -hmm. I think the first day was like a 208. So all we had to do was 209. We were comfortably doing 207. And that's, once again, spirit's culture. I guess Dave decided to turn it up. And that's when they set the 2062 with the team. In other words, we could go out there and, and literally cruise and go 209 and get the, get the trophy. But 
they turned it up and pushed out that 2062 in not ideal weather conditions again. Yeah, it snowed that morning. I think it was 45 maybe when we raced the last heat, I think. 30s to upper 30s, low 40s by the time race there, there was um, There was snow cover on the grass uh, that morning when we were taking the buggies out. Mm-hmm. And it was wet. Of course, the road was wet. Yeah, they have yeah. Uh, the, the BAA has a picture of that. Were you, even with those conditions, Dave, did you feel confident about shedding those seconds off? You know, we've talked about the wheel technology, and there was an evolution that had happened there with uh, rolling on uh, pneumatic wheels that allowed us to be more confident. Had it been um, our sting with derbies the whole way around, that cold air temperature and the cold track temperature and a wet track that's evaporating dry that would have slowed us down quite a bit. The pressure from DU, the pressure from the other teams, the willingness to be aggressive, and the pneumatics allowed us to turn up the wick and really go for go for it, even given those cold conditions. But I can remember there was a lot of people that had given up on race day happening when the, mm. when the flakes started flying. Past years, we still had a lot of work to do, and the buggy room would be a buzz with people a dozen people in there working on different things, working on wheels, getting buggies ready. And that night, um, four o'clock in the morning, I was the only one in the buggy room. Everybody else had gone home. Mm. And it was just working on the wheels at the end saying, you know, if the snow stops, we got to be ready to roll. And that was a difference in the organization for sure that we were, we were that ready, that there was not a whole laundry list of tasks left to do. But I can remember, I'm going to get these wheels as straight as they can possibly be. I'm going to make sure that they're tight, that the bearings are perfect, that we're going to, we have to be ready to go fast, turning up the wick. So the, you know, the conditions would have held us back that year. They didn't. And ultimately, it was the competitive pressure, I think, that pushed us to go faster. We as an organization had a theory for years that we were still a young organization, but we always picked lane one for our pushers because we wanted to leverage their competitive spirit. We wanted them to start from behind, at mm-hmm. least visually behind, and push them to do more. And that was the really the spirit of our organization, if you will. And the, that race day, by having somebody that was pushing us, made a difference in what we were willing to do and push ourselves to. Gotcha. And so just to confirm, so DU spun on the second day. So sort of at that point, you knew no one else was particularly close, but still it was the, the sort of pressure to get to the, the record or, or something you thought you knew you were capable of. Well, yeah, I might not be able to go back to the individual moments of, of that morning, but yes, they, they had spun. Uh, they were not a factor at that point. Uh, but the pressure that they put on us was really from day one. Uh, yeah. And so the decisions we made from the end of day one race day, uh, the whole way through um, the second day, were already made. So the fact that we were planning on going fast and having a driver who you're confident in and who's also very competitive, we may have had a conversation. Hey, do you want to back off a little bit on our speed? I guarantee you she would have said, no way. Right. I want to go as fast as I possibly go. When it's all said and done, she's a senior. She had driven buggy I think the whole time she had been there, she's looking at a legacy. What's my legacy going to be? Well, it's on her license plate 35 years later. Hey, Dave, what about, um, do you think the push teams were different in 88 and 87? Not really. So my view is we were just lighter in the back end. 
by whatever, 10 or 15 pounds, lighter was slightly lighter. In 88, they're, they're pushing the buggy. It's easier to push than Sting. So Sting was having some push bar issues, I think, in 87. And so I, in the height of the Sting push bar versus the height of the QL push bar, some things lined up for us by going from Sting to QL. Uh, like I said, it'll be a little lighter in the back end, I think, uh, helped us out. And then just monster push teams. I mean, Jay Glassby, uh obviously Terrence. And so we came with the Speed Hill 2s. We went away from the Big Hill 2s. So we went with the Terrence, who was a speed guy, but also could bench 225. But, but like I said, we went with the speed guy, great pickup, and 4-5 with Williams and Beckham. So it's just like I said, that push team, like I said, wish they could have touched couple other teams that had lighter buggies then and uh, different things. But with our team, like I said, I think that push team with that driver, we were in great shape. And I, I think one of the best push teams of all time. In terms of getting that record, what was sort of the timing system like back then, if I may ask, you know, how immediately did you know you had exactly that number? And, and when you did see it, what did it feel like? What was the reaction? What I, I was, I was telling, I was asking my wife if I should tell this story and she said, go ahead. My, my wife is, is a graduate from Pitt, but she was always involved with uh, going to auto races, going to Indy 500 all, when she was younger. So the timing system was stopwatches, a crew of stopwatches, you know, um, and they would compare times. So it would take a while. To get it up, we had a gun start uh, with a with a starter pistol that was not connected to a clock. They would start their watches when they heard the gun. So then there was a bit of comparison. Now, since I was basically an alumni at that point, uh, and so was, and I guess uh, Willie Weda uh, was he. I guess he was a last. He was an architect, so he was in his fifth year. Um, he was down in the chute and he and I, and I was up at the top with, with my girlfriend and that at the time. And, um, we both had these big radio shack walkie talkies. And so we were talking back and forth and we were given, you know, we weren't getting a great amount of race intel, but I, I have a picture of me talking to Dave in between one of the heats and giving him what, what we had gleaned so far. But, uh, and the timing board was, good old AFIO service organization. They would post those times on these with these little Velcro numbers on a, you know, on a, on a, on a board that had been stenciled probably, you know, two days before. And they just move these boards up and down on, on the leaderboard. And so, you know, time-wise, from the first day, DU was up there at the, at the top of the board for a while, and then they, they crashed, crashed out, and then the other times kept going up and, uh, you know, being posted up. And so finally, probably three, four, or five minutes after the race, RCT is speculating on what they kind of got at the finish line. And they're like, you know, and there was a lot of discussion about, you know, coming over the speakers. Is this going to be a record? Is it, a, you know, will they, will, will they get, you know, will they get DQ'd? Whatever. But then they posted the time, 206.2. As, as much as we knew it was possible, it was still an amazing thing. And there was a, a roar that went up from the crowd. Um, and then I, I passed this information down to Willie in the shoot over the walkie talkie and mm -hmm. there's silence. And then I hear not over the walkie talkie. I hear this 
yell, this guttural yell come up the hill from the chute. And I was like, Willie, are you okay? And, uh, and there's silence. And I'm like, Willie, over the walkie-talkie, are you okay, Willie? And he's like, yeah, I'm fine. I just shot both my nuts out of the end of my dick <laughs> because of the time. I don't know if you have to cut that, but it, it's exact, <laughs> those are his exact words. And, uh, and, and that was kind of like, you know, um, as, as two of the key designers for QL, uh, it was an amazing vindication, you know, of years of work, um, mm. of the quality of the team, of, you know, of, of just a lot of factors coming together. It, again, because, because you get, there's, there's so little practice relative to other sports for buggy. You get these, these Saturday and Sunday mornings in the spring the weather changes over the course of the, of the season. You know, you get a couple rolls around. It was quite a vindication. And then the, the, the cheer that went up down by the truck, because again, as, as, we had, as we had talked about, the fact that everyone thought it was a fluke, the fact that, you know, people resented an upstart organization from being able to, to, to come from zero to hero like that. At, down at our truck, and we're pretty famous for our parties uh, afterwards, down at the truck, uh, the, the cry went up, and it was probably one of our other designer or mechanics, Brent Caldwell, because it was a very well-chosen chant. It was no dispute over and over, <laughs> no dispute, because, you know, there had been such a hubbub about, oh, they'll never do that again, mm. you know. That I'll was leaving out one of the important parts, which is just two years before that, we had been DQ'd for failing the drop test. So even after the course had been completed, there was still a lot of anxiety. Uh, Tom at that point was alumni, but uh, we had to pass that drop test. So mm. there, my concentration was really on getting QL and Kathy Lynn through that process and making sure we could check that box because we knew if we came close to the line, so everybody was watching. Especially after performance like that. Yeah, it was a kick-ass time. <laughs> hey, Will, let me, uh, let me give you a replacement quote for what Tom said. And really was very excited. <laughs> I'm not still positive where this is being hosted um, or who's on the, on the hook for it. I've also yet to record the, the Board of Kestis episode. So, um, yeah, they'll, 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 they'll drop. They'll, they'll take yeah. that one like you said you're heading for the we're, we're starting your slide into the gutter <laughs> yeah well uh there may be a yeah director's cut or something buoy matt definitely interested to know kind of your thoughts on you know when you saw that number come out what what the feelings were like for you on on that race day well for me it was uh it was not a vindication per se but it's also we just want to push team we weren't just you know, it wasn't just happenstance, it wasn't lucky, is that at this university, Spirit proved that we were the best team buggy-wise and push team-wise and organization-wise. We had moved through excuses and, and we had taken on all the folks. So it's like I said, so to me, the, the emotion is, you know, it's not a relief, 
Uh, but it's sort of like you think you can do it, you think you can do it, but to actually accomplish it, it's almost like it's almost like a dream. I mean, it's like you kind of it's like a surreal moment because literally, I was there when we rolled, you know, two fifty seven, and then only three and a half, you know, three years later, we're, we're rolling. 2062. So we went from second to worst. I think on team we beat Budweiser, I think, or whatever, somebody like that, to being the best of the best. And so to me, uh, it was it was just a run of emotion. And 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 um, I mean, I was I was just taken over by we did it. And like it's like it's, like it's one thing to put a plan. It's another thing to write it. It's another thing to talk on WRCT and say you're going and talk a bunch of mess. How you're going to do this and that? It's another thing to go out and do it and. I felt like I said, Dave, Fred, and eighty eight team pulled it all together, and actually got to the finish line. So it was, it was just an emotional experience. And like I said, for me, it's a lifelong experience. I, I say this just about every day. I think it probably more than four or five times a day. When others I work with today, I'm a military guy, start to think things are not going to go right or get to fail, or they can't see. I'm becoming optimist because I, I said I've lived it. I've gone through many situations. But it really started with Buggy where we were the true underdog, didn't have a chance, and got to be the best. And so I think about it all the time, and it keeps me positively going through, through things today. So, and often I talk to these three gentlemen and say the same thing, is that I think about Buggy when I get to a bad spot. And like I said, it's just the inspirational hope thing that, that we were able to accomplish. Yeah, I mean, my, my story is different than all these guys because I was already gone. So I was in graduate school in uh, Minnesota and uh, getting my ass kicked, right? And I had final or not, like, so I couldn't get a carnival, right? Mm-hmm. So um, I just, but I remember I can picture myself in my apartment, I can exact, is, and I don't know which of you guys called me, but someone calls me, I'm on the phone and I hear the 2062 and I cry. I just, it was just an amazing thing to hear. I, I guess I, <sighs> I was confident or pretty confident we were going to win because, you know, there's no reason why we shouldn't have won given, given that all my, all my boys and girls were still there and, you know, the team was better than it was the year before. So, you know, I expected a win, but like a 2062, that was a huge jump too, right? And, 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 and dropping the, um, dropping the record. So no, I was just being amazing. I mean, my, my memory for just the winning thing was the year before I was my last year there and I do makes kind of I'm gonna probably cry, right? We figure out that we're not gonna roll. It's the first day's time. All that gets announced, and so no one in spirit understands any of this stuff because we're all new. And I'm at the the, the foot of the truck, and I explain to everybody, and I'm kind of shaking as I do that. It's fun. It's like so. Therefore, that means we just won, <laughs> right? Everybody right. starts cheering. Dr. Hill had given us, you know, this is, the campus was different back then. So who who ran C C Matt? She brings us, there's like, all of a sudden there's a case of champagne and there's champagne everywhere. And then I remember just like, just, just, just chaos. And just like, again, every, every, what everybody just said, like it's that validation and just joy, it's just joy and grabbing buoy. And while it doesn't, well, it's different anymore because it used to be, you used to be able to walk up that hill where the um, business school is, where temper is, it used to not be temper, right? Walking up that hill and just making him sit down and just the two of us just seeing everyone going crazy and just sharing that moment with him. And I feel part of like the two of six too. It's like, I know it's, it's Dave's, right. It's, you know, and you know, Tom's and Boo, it's not mine. Right. But it is mine too, because of, you know, it's still spirit buggy. Right. And, you know, I'm, 
I, I, you know, I'm so proud of what they did. I would say also what it did do put away is that the original guys are gone. And so, oh, well, they'll be like other teams. They pop up, they do three or four years, they kind of fade. Yeah. Essentially still around, Matt graduates, some of the original guys move on. And guess what? We don't go away. We actually get better. And we actually get two teams in the seven, three teams in the 12, two women's in the four. I mean, it, 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 we just got stronger in, 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 the, in 88. And that, I think, showed that spirit was here to stay. So there's a lot of teams that popped up, a lot of enthusiasm in the late 80s and 90s, Pioneers, A-Pi, all these teams came up, flashed a little bit, but we stayed. And so I felt that that put the stamp in we were going to be around. And aside from all the things you normally expect, the emotion, the payoff for all your hard work, I even had a little side hustle going on. I had a bet going with uh, Frank yeah. and Beta on a little adult beverage that had to be paid off afterwards. So, and I'm not talking about a drink. I'm talking about 16 gallons. So uh, <laughs> it was uh, insult to injury that they had to dig, dig into their own pockets and, and pay off on the wager afterwards. How did, you know, the reception change um, after you all won 88? You had the record. You know, you kind of proved all those doubters wrong. Was it warmer? Did, did people come around? Did the resentment only grow? I'll kind of give my perspective was, so there were some other pieces that we kind of skipped over there. Obviously, ATO had a problem. There was a big safety rule hit. And then I call it, it's not the ATO rules. We call it the spirit rules. The rule book went from about eight, nine pages to 100 pages. So we actually had to reconfigure all of our buggies to meet these requirements. Tom, Dave, Kex did an outstanding job. But I think there was concern that even though we were going fast, we weren't safe now. So, well, or, let, let, let me just interject, just, just, just to explain it, that this concern was valid. <laughs> yeah, not that we thought at the time, but one of the things we did, right? And so we would like, whatever rules we could exploit, we would, right? Whatever we could do, take it, it's racing, so you take it to the edge, right? And so when we raced, when we first, not raced, we first were free, low, free rolling, um, uh, Genesis tank. It had no back. It had no no back at all. So uh, our driver's feet. This is Nancy St. Louis. Her feet stuck out the back of the buggy, and I remember looking at that, thinking like, "That's probably not safe for free rolls." So we made her cross her ankles and bent her knees, and then I taped her ankles to the push bar <laughs> and set yeah. her down that way. She did. She did have two accidents in that configuration, and she was a okay. And the other two buggies were taken out. Let's one point that out. She was fine. So, so there was this thing. There was spirit rule. Because all of a sudden, because again, this is the alumni noticing it, was like, oh, those guys actually can kind of go fast every now and then. And, you know, part of it was them, I think, just not trusting us because we weren't part of that kind of um, the fraternity network and even like CIA who had, or even SDC who had been with Buggy forever and ever and ever. You know, so we were outsiders, so we had no trust factor at all with those guys. And we did things like tape a driver's legs to the push bar. So, and so, yeah, we really felt all those rules were, were out to get us. We became very familiar with Ann Wichner and all everybody else at the university. But I would say that because of the placement and obviously setting the record, I felt had to be accepted. We actually were doing pretty good politically within the the organization we were actually nominating the cheer people pretty constantly and the safety people most of the folks we had nominated but i think 
when Dave and Fred set the record, I think we had we finally had a seat at the table. So Sigma Nu moved over a little bit, Beta moved over a little bit, Pyta never moved over, but they let us sit there. And so they let us at the table. So and and, and that and that, and that was okay. Before we got to the table because we were fun and energetic and they would just let us show up and because we were fairly entertaining because we talked a lot of smack. But I would say that as Matt alluded to earlier, that when you hit the eighty eight, you hit the record, I felt that, okay, now we're here. And so and I really felt I mean, because of the building another buggy and the future eighty nine we build another buggy. So then oh so now there's another push. There's more buggies coming out of this machine. So I think that kind of solidified us with the record. I felt the acceptance coming in 88. And, you know, and there's what I've told a bunch of the students over the years is the one thing that ends all conversations is, yeah, but we won. You know, they can be like, did you see when we did this and our team did that? And, you know, what about that? And then you end the conversation with, yeah, but we won. So now we could take it to the next level and we could be like, yeah, but we set the record. And Matt, who had worked that summer or the summer before (laughs) with Goodyear, he had all these Goodyear stickers, all these Goodyear mailing labels. And so so they had this nice white spot. And we would write 2062 on those mailing labels and – and and it was a bit of disinformation too because at that point we didn't get our wheels from Goodyear, but it said Goodyear Research and two hundred six two, and we stuck those stickers all over campus. I mean, we stuck them in the fraternity houses. I mean, you know. So I mean, we were not we were not necessarily the most gracious of winners, but we but we were fun. And and at that point too, we did feel. You know, there was there was a past tradition of of the fraternity houses being open to the winners of buggy, so Ooh. we took advantage of that and and we wandered around and we did feel that we were you know at least allowed in because of the 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 performance, yeah. um, not necessarily fully always welcome forever, but but we did get in, and uh, it it was. It was fun. It was interesting. You know, we had a great time. You know, we had and we had some good parties the rest of that semester. I mean, seriously, it was <laughs> good times. Bowie, early on, you mentioned kind of one of the real original points of getting even into Buggy was getting Spirit to be more of a part of campus and kind of vice versa. Campus to accept Spirit a bit more. How do you think? you know, going through the three-year plan through 206.2 helped you all to achieve that or kind of just change the culture of spirit itself or the culture of campus? Can't give a detail numbers, but I can say on the African-American minority side, I think we have to see now brown people. But I would just say is that the graduation rate, the retention rate, who was essentially for the classes of 87, 88, going a little south, went straight through the roof. In other words, people are staying on campus, they're interacting, they're doing more from that side. The spirit budget blows up. I mean, obviously, the fashion show, the talent show, the booth, and all the things the spirit has done is, is taken off. In other words, it's a feel-good atmosphere. We're actually integrated into the campus. We don't have to go to pit. And so, and, and, and essentially, like I said, that feeling you have from winning, though it goes in the last two or three weeks of the semester, I mean, you're walking around campus with spirit shirts on, 
Asante saying hi. What's up? How you doing? We're walking into uh, what's the bar down the street? We used to walk into. We never we never walked until we won. What was the name of that bar? Panther Halloween. Yeah, Panther Halloween. Hey, we roll in, man. It's our spot, man. Who used to sit there? Beta. That's our spot. No, but my point is, <laughs> is that it's just a it's an atmosphere. You get that confidence. You just you yeah. get that thing going. I think people look at you differently. I mean, I just think if you, I mean, this is a pretty tough competition. We entered in year 66, and, you know, you're told you can't get there. We completely changed how buggy was. The buggies used to be around 35, 40 teams. It went up to 55 teams at the, uh, in probably 89, 90 time frame, I believe. I don't have the numbers directly, but all of a sudden, everybody thought they could get in. The Air Force RTC get in. Pioneers could get in. DU, uh, DU kind of faded away, but other fraternities started coming back. KDR came out the woodwork. My point is, it kind of opened things up. Pika banded with a sorority, Theta, to try to catch us on the women's side. I think it changed Buggy and the campus forever. And to the point, we named the Buggy Quantum Leap. Kind of one of those things that I guess we got a little bit of ego. It was a Quantum Leap, but it pushed every it pushed everything. And to this day, SEC buggies look a lot like quantum leap. <laughs> I mean, I just want to make sure everybody gets that. 30 years later, that configuration, they've taken it to the next level. They got better weight balance. They got less rolling friction. They've taken it to the next level. They're the kings right now. But that's an extension of spirit buggy out there. And, and, and independence to the point where the independence going to run the show. So I, I think it's huge. Like I said, the concept, how we got started. And where we are today, I think, is, uh, like I said, those late 80s, early 90s, we set the tone. I mean, I mean, think about some of the numbers out there from the Buggy Alumni Association. For 12 years, 1987 to 1999, we finished in the top three. Mm. From 87 to 93, we finished six of the first seven years in the men's. And women, from 86 to 97, 12 years, we finished in the top three and won three of the first five years. We set a record that stayed in place for 20 years. So we held that record for years. And like I said, th- those, those are the numbers that I look at the results. I, I think when you have that type of success and that type of culture, I think it kind of built momentum for others to interact. And, hey, I saw you doing buggy. I saw you doing this. Why don't you be my partner in yeah. class? Or why don't we do this mm-hmm. together? So I, I think we, to me, you know, uh, we really opened it up, the campus, buggy, and impacted the whole university. Yeah, I, was, I absolutely agree. I think um, you know, reflecting on it, like I don't know, 15, 20 years later, is is the vision that Dr. Sire had really was brilliant, and it really did exactly what he wanted when he basically gave Spirit, you know, no other choice but to do buggy. Right? Is he wanted to keep black leaders on campus, and he wanted to start to integrate the campus more. And that happened, right? Again, Spirit became this great positive place to be. People weren't going down, you know, again, nothing against Pitt, nothing against black fraternities and sororities, but all of a sudden there's a much more of stuff happening on campus for black folks. And I remember you know, coming back, you know, I don't know, maybe five years after we won or something like that. I don't know, a relatively young alumni. And then all of a sudden, and, and, and I don't mean anything offensive by this, I think it's awesome, is there were black pikas. And back in our day, like that was just unheard of. And it not, you know, not necessarily because of racism, but because of where people are coming from. They're coming from like small Western PA towns. They're just not familiar with people of color. You know, it's just, you know, every, you know, things where people are a little bit isolated or whatever. But then like Bowie said, like all of a sudden, 
you know, you see black folks who do really well, and then you kind of have to interact with them on the buggy feet, court, you know, buggy, buggy fields <laughs> on, on the roads. And then all of a sudden, yeah, you can ask this, this guy or this woman to be your lab partner and all that sort of stuff. And it just, you know, obviously we're not responsible for all of it, but, you know, I say no. this, that, that if nothing else, you know, I, I am so happy and thrilled and fill of joy about being involved with Spirit Buggy because it's the one thing I can say for sure that we made the world a better place. You know, it wasn't just a sport. I agree with you, man. I, and I'd say, like I said, it was to me also, Spirit was a strong organization, obviously centered inward, uh, did a great things. Obviously, from the late 60s on, yes, yeah. uh, to me, to then literally evolve and open up was huge on the Spirit core leadership. I, I, I can't... You're a small organization, essentially with 85 to 90, representing 85 to 90 people on the campus, essentially, and to open up and embrace true diversity, I think was huge. Don Starver, Anthony Jones, Angela Gore. I remember, I mean, I'm saying, hey, to do this, we got to open up. That's my roommate, to the point that the Black Alumni Association today, even though it says the Black Alumni Association, is open to all spirit, spirit bugging, et cetera. So, et cetera. So my point is, is that to me, it was, it was a huge movement in the black community and as the, in the university as a whole. Well, and I think uh, one of the things that's important about that is not just the rest of campus seeing minority organization being uh, active and successful on campus, but also that organization being a role model for integration in itself. We would allow, we would welcome anyone on the team who was competitive, energetic, committed, and good at what they were hoping to do. So we had a, an incredible cross-section of people on the team that ultimately led to that success. So it really, I think, sent a message to the, to the rest of the school that there really isn't an excuse anymore. Um, it's, it's not one organization that, that looks a certain way over here and other organizations that look a certain way over there. It was about we integrated uh, spirit first. We got integrated into campus. We got energized. We, we were successful. And and then to Bowie's point, I think it spread from there. I know we've been going for a bit here. I, th- I had some questions on legacy. I think you really, really wonderfully and eloquently kind of covered it there on sort of the impact on, on Buggy and kind of the campus overall. Is there anything else, you know, I maybe didn't get to in this that you'd like to share or any other kind of, you know, final thoughts to wrap things up. It's nice to, you know, get a positive story out there every once in a while about vision can, can do amazing things. You know, dedication can do amazing things. And, you know, I hope I, I truly, I still mentor uh, the team. Uh, We all have, have impact on the team. And uh, you know, it's, it, it is, it is all within the realm of the possible. It's been cool to see the development of camaraderie amongst the alumni from teams, amongst the students. So it's it's all been a, a fun time watching Buggy evolve from us as students to us as alumni. So we appreciate this opportunity. I don't know when we're in it. We maybe didn't always think about legacy or down the road. But now going into our 35th year coming up uh, this spring, uh, it's been a pretty awesome ride. And like I said, the results are the same. Uh, we're not the record guys anymore. But the, the team that hang on for the last 10, 12 years and just keep on battling to just try to stretch for a fifth and sixth has been equally as tough. Uh, and so I, I would say that, you know, uh, I appreciate you 
reaching out to us and, and, and talking about the late 80s and early 90s. Thank you. I guess my last words is just, it's, I, I still feel this way from that moment that Bowie got me to come out as a sweeper and I'm on the top of the hill too. Buggy's an incredible sport. It's really, really, really a great sport. And, you know, I am just honored that, you know, Spirit were part of its history. And, um, you know, really, really proud and really grateful that we were, you know, uh, or, and are, you know, a particularly notable part of it. And, uh, you know, we're going to be at Carnival, so we'll have fun. I resent every one of you for making me go through all of this. Eighty-five. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I just want to pile on and, and say uh, thanks. You know, the, the whole opportunity to be involved in sweepstakes was not part of my plan in going to Carnegie Mellon. Yeah, it was a surprise. It was something that, you know, we can talk about it changing the campus, but I think the people that are involved in sweepstakes all are changed. And I think uh, for the most part in a very positive way. And as Bowie said, it's something that affects you every day. It's something you think about. It may be subconsciously, but when you're able to be successful at this level in, in a sport that requires real true teamwork, I think it changes you forever. And so um, to that, I say appreciate Bowie uh, and Matt for getting me involved. I appreciate Tom for his mentorship as we went through this. And and I guess I'll just conclude by saying I uh, appreciate Will the opportunity to uh, to tell a little bit of our story. Yeah. Well, thank you all. Uh, you know, appreciate that. And this, like I said, was one of the episodes I was most excited about. And I think this even kind of exceeded my expectations. So I appreciate just, you know, all the time and, and dedication to, to really give the whole story. So there you have it, the incredible true story of Spirit Buggy. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode as much as I did. Uh, if you have any feedback on this episode or any other, uh, we would love to hear it. If you go to cmubuggy.org slash chat, uh, you can hop in our Discord uh, and share your comments there. Uh, additionally, if you have ideas for new episodes, want to be on a new episode, whatever it may be, uh, that is the place to let us know. We are working through our back blog uh and we'll start putting those together uh sooner or later uh, speaking of backlog in two weeks really exciting episode coming from one dynasty to the next uh we're going to talk with members of a couple of the recent sdc teams uh that set the course records um in 09 and then 2017 uh you're not going to want to miss that really fun interview there uh, as always, I have to give big thanks to the Buggy Alumni Association and Rachel Smith uh, for her help in putting this all together. Uh, so yeah, tune back in in a couple weeks, and thank you so much for listening to this episode of Shoot the Shit. <laughs>